We are today wrapping up part one of our series through the book of Genesis. Now, uh, Genesis, as you may have heard, is, is divided into two parts. Chapters uh, 1 through 11 cover what is called the generations of mankind. You may have heard that term, generations of Adam, generations of Noah even now. And, and so that's covering those, those generations. But then we'll pick up in, in chapter 12 after New Year's and uh, pick up what becomes a very um, uh, detailed but big narrative story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob uh, and the 12 tribes of Israel. And so it's a really great uh, it's narrative. We'll be a little less down in the weeds and like taking some larger chunks next time. Uh, today, uh, we are wrapping up in, chapters, in the second half of chapter 9 through uh, 11. Uh, and then for the next six weeks or so, we'll focus on Advent. Now, I know um, you heard the story read just a moment ago of Noah and uh, his, his little adventure, right? Uh, after this incredible story of his faithfulness and walking with the Lord and hold, you know, holding up, he was a righteous man. Uh, Noah builds a vineyard, plants a vineyard, grows some uh, uh, grapes, um, ferments some wine, gets drunk, passes out drunk in his tent. So, it kind of went down. It sounds a little bit less like scripture and more like a reality TV show um, or an expose on a politician. But um, <laughs> the, uh, the, the, the story here is fascinating as scripture actually doesn't pull its punches. It could have easily dropped this story out, could have easily left this story out and like focused on a few things of like, and Noah later in his life cursed Canaan, you know, or something like that. But it, it puts this story in there. And I believe it's for one very uh, overarching sort of big picture reason. And then we'll get into some details of what's actually happening uh, in this passage. But I think he want, uh, that the writer, the, Moses, as God was inspiring him to write this down, Moses didn't walk through this. He wasn't alive, but God inspired him to write down and take these oral traditions and put them into writing. Um, he was basically reminding us that, uh, or helping us to see that Noah is not the serpent crusher. So in Genesis three fifteen, God had promised through, that through the offspring of Eve, God would send one who would crush the head of the serpent. In other words, crushing the power of sin and death. But, and, and if you look at Noah's life, right? Noah walked with God, Noah was a righteous man, Noah was, you know, the man who saved, he, he built the ark and, and all the people went with him and, and, uh, and all the animals. And so you could picture him as like, oh, he, maybe he's the one. Well, this story kind of dispels that, right? <laughs> like, I mean, in a really graphic sort of sad way, but just in case you were wondering and, and anyone was tempted to look to Noah in this way, he was not, um, not the one. And so it's a reminder for us as we head into uh, the Christmas season that there were many in the Old Testament who were looking forward to the coming of the serpent crusher. They were waiting. And we have the incredible privilege, uh, which is what Advent's really about, is about looking back and experiencing that longing, that waiting, uh, but also knowing Christ has come. We have the glorious knowledge that through the entire Old Testament, what was you know 1,500 years or more of history, uh, God, God was picturing this Christ who would come, and then we have seen him come. We, he has come into the world. We know what he did. We know what his purpose was. Um, but then uh, before we dive into this count, I, I wanted to 
I've already said it, but the highlight, we're covering from 918 to chapter 11. And if you've scanned ahead at all in your journal Bible, you may have noticed that chapter 10 is like a, a, is a genealogy again, right? So a Jerusalem phone book listing um, where you're just reading a page of names that you can't pronounce in places that you've never heard of. Um, but trust me, this is important. But what it's picturing is, is uh, chapter 10 is picturing all of uh, Noah's descendants sort of spreading across the known world at that time. You can actually draw a map if you want to Google it, you can Google it. They're online uh, maps of like where basically we know that these uh, places began to settle or these people began to settle in different parts of uh, the Middle East and Northern Africa uh, and even over towards Europe. And so uh, that, that's part of it. But it seems weird if you know chapter 11 is called the Tower of Babel, which you're like, I thought everybody was in one place in the Tower of Babel and then God sent them out. Well, what God's doing here, and I want to mention this now before we get to it, is God's doing what sometimes modern television movie or, uh, movies or TV episodes do. You ever, maybe your favorite show or movie you're, you're watching, and it starts, and it's usually this really precarious position or some resolve of some kind, and you're like watching it, and then quickly, they, uh, about three or five minutes in, they back up. And they go two months earlier, you know, and they begin to walk back up to it. That's exactly what Genesis is doing here. It's the same thing that happened in Genesis 1 and 2. Chapter uh, 1, if you remember, God created the whole universe, including mankind. It says in Genesis 1, God created mankind. Then chapter 2, it seems like a recapitulation of that same idea. But what he's doing is he's actually going back into that story from chapter 1 and diving down on the creation of mankind. So in this story, Genesis... If you're going to put it chronologically, Genesis 10 would come after Genesis 11. But what the author is wanting us to see is, is basically Noah, Noah's kids, and then uh, landing in the, the story of the Tower of Babel. So we're going to see today that Noah, um, God's plan, God's design has always been for diversity. God loves a multicultural people. He's redeeming for himself a people from across the world, and he wants that group of people. Indeed, that people is today, and will even only increasingly be so, a diverse, multicultural people. And Noah, believe it or not, it's rooted in Noah. And then we see how God intervened to, to um, push his plan for diversity, and then finally how this plan of redemption um, throughout history is inherently tied to it. All right, so let's walk through these. First, God roots diversity in Noah's family. God roots diversity down in Noah's family. So chapter 10, jumping ahead a little bit again, is the, sounds like the restart of a, the population. The population is beginning to grow, it's beginning to diversify, it's beginning to spread. Chapter 10, verse 1 says, This is the account of Shem, Ham, and Jepheth, Noah's sons, who themselves had sons after the flood. Now, this is important because it shows that all of mankind um, is, is connected here through, uh, through Noah. In chapter 9, verse 19, it says, These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the whole earth. So he's rooting the diversity of people in Noah. This multitude of languages, cultures, and ethnicities across the world um, are rooted in the story of Noah. Noah. Now, I realize, uh, especially if you're from, say, the Far East, 
and, and you know, ethnically from the, and culturally from the Far East, then you're thinking, well, how does this connect? Well, I'm not trying to uh, draw a distinction here as much as I'm simply saying that the known world, and it's a lot of questions about what was the known world at that point, but there's, clearly they did not have a full concept of all the continents, for example. Um, and so what Noah in, in the story is showing here is I think actually it may be a picture of what God's doing, God was doing globally uh, in his plan and his purpose. So Genesis 9 reminds us that every person is made in the image of God. And so then if you root this diversity back into Noah, then the idea of the image of God being multiplied throughout all the nations and the pictures of this in the, the, the beautiful diversity um, is God's plan and God's purpose. In fact, chapter 10 lists 70 nations, 70 nations. Now, I've already emphasized numbers, right, uh, in the book. Um, this was not accidental. It wasn't like uh, he, he ran out of, of nations after 69 and found one more. Um, he lists 70 nations as a picture of totality and completion. This doesn't mean every descendant or even every nation, but communicates this idea of every one. And there's within this, in Noah's family, there is rooted a, a picture actually of, um, of, the, of uh, ethnic diversity uh, through the visible uh, coloration of skin. Uh, Dr. Tony Evans mentions this in his book, Oneness Embrace, that actually Je- um, Jepheth, Shem, and Ham their names had connotations related to skin color. Jepheth meant light or bright. Shem meant dusk or brown. And Ham meant burnt or dark. Um, and this shows up in chapter 10 when you look at where, these, where each of their children, their sons, uh, and their families uh, settled. Jepheth uh, was found uh, sort of headed towards Greek, uh, Greece and parts of Europe. Some scholars believe even as far as Scandinavia, um, on anywhere along the Mediterranean Sea. Ham, uh, his descendants moved towards Africa and Assyria, um, some uh, parts of Egypt, and even um, what was called Cush, or what is northern Ethiopia today. Um, Put, which is Libya, Canaan. Um, Canaan, the son of, um, of Ham, migrated north for some reason. We don't know exactly why, except that he was going, uh, the Canaanites were going to be a plague on Is- the Israelites. Um, which is sort of why, one of the reasons why we believe that he cursed Canaan. Uh, and then Shem settled the Middle East, northern Mesopotamia, Syria, which are modern-day Iran, Yemen, and maybe as far as India. And so we see this spreading out, this diversification of humanity, uh, spreading across the face of the earth, um, despite the brokenness. Um, and this very story of Noah's post-flood drunken stupor um, it pictures this, reminds us that, that this is not a lineage of perfection or holiness. This is still broken humanity spreading. Uh, but to briefly comment on this story, which again seems weird because if you heard it, it basically sounds like Ham just kind of stumbled in on his dad while he was naked and drunk, passed out in his tent, right? Like Ham just went in and saw him and then left. Um, but it, there's a lot of, lot of speculation about what that means. Verse 22 says, he saw the nakedness of his father. And this is stump scholars, but there's been a lot of speculation. Some Jewish rabbi said that Ham actually castrated his father. Others have speculated that it was actually an act of sodomy. Others have said that um, because of later in Leviticus, the language of uncovering one's nakedness is a euphemism for sleeping with a close relative of that person. 
Uh, and so there's speculation that Ham slept with Noah's wife, which would have been his own mother. Um, but these are all speculation that I think get further and further from the text. If you read the text for what it says and you understand the honor-shame culture of the Middle East, you can begin to understand what happened. Um, so, so Ham um, stumbled in um, and he saw his father passed out drunk naked, right? And rather than immediately sort of withdrawing and going, oh, I got to get out of here, I, he actually hung around. And like, I don't know if he laughed at his dad. Um, he thought it was funny that his dad was drunk, passed out. Um, and there is speculation because of what the other two, his two brothers did, that he may have actually taken his dad's cloak, thinking, oh, he's going to wake up, he's going to look for his cloak, and he's going to be naked, and he's not going to be able to find it. And he left, right? Because his brothers actually took the cloak and put it over their dad. Um, but there, there's, there's speculation about what that meant. Now, I know you're thinking, that's weird. Why would a person do that? Well, I know I'm probably the only one in the room who has ever gone to a party where people drink a lot, like a lot. And there's someone who passes out, right? Or falls asleep. And what does everyone else do, especially the guys? It's let's all stand around and make fun of him, laugh at him, find a Sharpie and make marks on his face. Like there, there's, there's something in us that when somebody is in that position of drunken vulnerability that, that can be drawn to that. And I think that's probably what Ham did. He was like, I can't believe my dad. Look at him. He looks so ridiculous, you know. But he disrespected his father in a way that um, in the Middle East, in an honor-shame culture, he basically took Noah's honor by mocking him. He shamed his father. And he went out and told his brother, so he even further, it wasn't even a private thing. It was like he went out and he was like, yeah, dad's in there drunk, naked. It's hysterical, you know? And his brothers were like, oh my gosh, like you saw dad? Like you did not cover him up. You did not, uh, you looked on him, then you took his honor. And this was actually punishable by death in uh, Middle Eastern culture. So the two brothers go out of their way to restore their father's honor and not bring any more shame. If you remember what it says, it says they actually put their cloaks, held, held his cloak behind them, and they both sort of backed up, you know, until they got, okay, okay, he's near, he's there, right? Okay, and like threw it over him because um, they just did not want to shame their father. And this is actually a picture of how God approaches our shame that he seeks to cover our shame. This is, uh, mirrors the uh, Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve were naked and ashamed, right? And God, uh, God took uh, animal skins and covered them, covered their shame. And so in this picture, uh, uh, Ham, or Sh- uh, and, uh, uh, sorry, Jepheth and Shem cover their father as a picture of covering his shame. Now, verses 24 through 27, Noah curses Canaan. And blesses his brothers. It seems weird. You'd think he'd curse Ham, right? You'd think he would particularly point out Ham. But because um, what did Canaan do at this point? One way to look at this, though, is as a wish and not a declaration. So he wasn't. He didn't have the control or power to like guarantee that that uh, Canaan would be cursed. But he picked Canaan out. Um, as one who God had already established uh, among his people. And by the time Moses wrote this, knew the Canaanites were an ungodly people. And it was reiteration of this curse on Canaan. Um, Now, I'm going to mention something that's absolutely horrible, but this has come to be justified and actually used as as a horrible heresy called the curse of Ham. 
The curse of Ham, that, that Noah cursed Ham, and Ham being dark-skinned and settling in northern Africa, was used by uh, white American and English slave traders as justification for uh, the great Atlantic slave trade. They, they said, well, clearly, you know, these, these were cursed people, so they're not quite uh, equal. It's not even what this text was saying. It's a horrible heresy that was used uh, to justify for a long time. And I know many of you are thinking, I can't even believe anyone would believe that and, and, and hold to the Christian faith. Well, I can tell you as, a, as someone who grew up in, in the South that there were echoes of this even when I was a kid, right? I was born in 1972, so not real long after the Civil Rights Movement. And it wasn't, you know, as, as even our countries today is not this great bastion of love and unity racially. And so imagine back then um, that there was still uh, this kind of naive, um, what I believe are, are a, was a clear heresy um, that Satan used. Uh, one commentator highlighted here, he says, Noah is not punishing Ham's son for something that Ham did. Noah used the occasion to prophesy how the descendants of Ham, the Canaanites, would act. So this is a line of cursing similar to the, uh, from the serpent to Cain and now uh, to Canaan. And what we see is from this line come the Egyptians, the Philistines, the Assyrians, and the Babylonians. All these people were a pagan people uh, who were... Uh, neighbors against Israel for generations to come. They practiced pagan, uh, pagan worship, which often included sexual, all kinds of sexual things. Um, they, uh, they, they treated women horribly, and they even practiced child sacrifice. This is not a benevolent pagan people. This is a destructive pagan people. So the ends of chapter 9 and all of chapter 10 is about the diversity here that's rooted in um, Noah's family. There's something in the heart of God that loves this diversity, um, and he delights in it. So we're going to see in chapter 11 here, uh, the second idea, that God responds to mankind's sin. So God intervenes. Uh, so he, the sons of Noah were, were together. They were in one place, and they had a common language. Look at verse 11, or chapter 11, verse 1 and following. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which children, the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold. They are a people, they are one people, and they have all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will, be, will now be impossible for them. Now let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the languages of the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth." Now, this is probably a familiar story if you grew up in church. Uh, you have images in your mind of a, you know, ancient, like, little brick uh, ziggurat, like, cartoon drawing. I remember seeing this in the, the children's Bible that my mom and dad would read uh, to me. And, but if you're not from church, uh, didn't grow up in church, you may even be familiar with it from our culture. Uh, it sounds like when you start reading it that Genesis 11 is really about people working together, right? People were together, people were uh, unified, and they were doing something great, but it isn't. 
uh, Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf uh, pictures what happens in Genesis 11 as a totalitarian racism. Why? Well, verse 11, chapter 11, verse 1 says, the whole earth had one language. I don't know if you're aware of this, but this is not natural. This, this can only come through force, through control, through subjugation. People, every people, ends up having, developing their own uh, idioms, their own uh, jargon, their own um, language uh, and, and culture. Uh, and so to force that, to control that, is to force uniformity. Even across uh, City on a Hill, right? Like, if you're new to City on a Hill, you've learned a new word since you've been here for a little while. It's koa. I know the first time you came to City on a Hill, you were like, what's a koa? I need to look that up. Because I don't know what a koa is. I don't have a koa. Do you have a koa? Because um, <laughs> it's a weird, it's a weird word. But once you've been around for a while, it just flows off your off your tongue, right? That's an inside word, and that just developed in our church. So imagine how that develops among a larger group of people, and it takes incredible force to keep people, everyone, on the same page. The question, though, is who could do this in this time? Well, back in chapter ten, verses eight and nine, a guy named Nimrod is mentioned. He, I know it's a really horrible name, right? It sounds like you're insulting someone, but he was actually a pretty legit guy. He's called a mighty man. He was the founder of Babylon and Assyria and the great empires in the land of Shinar. And the system that Nimrod created involved the hindrance and repression of ethnic diversity, of cultural and language diversity. He was the first human being to try to wipe out diversity to force conformity. And the city and the tower were a testimony to this. We are going to keep everyone together and we'll keep everyone focused by building something really big and we'll do it for us and create that sense of belonging here. But the tower also represented human pride, rooted back in Adam and Eve's bid for independence. The tower was now a testament to human independence. Even the language of verse 2, it says they, the people here migrated from the east. Well, when Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, where were they cast out? East, right? And where did Cain settle? East, there's actually a book, east of Eden, right? And then here, well, anywhere in the book of Genesis, when you move east, it is moving away from God's presence and his blessing. And this passage says they literally moved further, migrated uh, east. For, uh, chapter 11, verses 3 and 4, they say, let us make bricks. So the people are beginning to have advancements. This is a new technology. There's not a lot of records of these types of, of bricks during this time. Um, and their plan was to build a city, right? Cities aren't bad. Cities can be where you can maximize resources. Um, cities can be places for human flourishing. But in this context, it was not about human flourishing. It was about finding an identity separate from God. It says it literally sought this build, to build this city not for their glory or in the good of people, but for their own name. That's called vanity or pride. It's the denial of the creator and the assertion of, of the created thing, self, over the creator. When our meaning and identity are not built on our creator, then we will build our meaning and identity in some created thing. There is no, there, there is no alternative. You were made to be rooted and, and find your identity, your meaning, your purpose, your direction in something. 
You will. And if you do not find it in the one who created you, you will seek it in some created thing in this world. Some see it in their career or, or their status or money or honor or family. The problem is the false promise of Babel is actually the same lie of the garden. Do you get that? The false promise of Babel is, uh, oh, you will be God-like. But it's the same lie fed to humanity since the garden. It offers freedom, but only brings bondage. It offers authenticity, but only brings slavery to self. It offers fullness of life, but it is only a pathway to death because it leads away from our creator. Notice the direction of this building. It's like they can't, even though they want to deny God, they can't help but build towards God. It says, with the tops, this tower have with its tops in the heavens. They wanted to be like God, and they knew where greatness lied. They wanted to build this, the, the theologians speculate, they wanted to basically build this tower right up to heaven because they thought you could like get up to God and then just knock on heaven's door and go, hey, God, look at us. We're awesome, aren't we? It's, it's like, a, it's like a, a, a four-year-old boasting about his muscles in front of a world-class bodybuilder, right? Or more, more aptly, it's like an ant boasting about his amazing anthill to scientists at MIT, right? Look at my anthill, it's amazing. I, I just gotta, the text itself even reveals um, <laughs> that God is meant, trying to humiliate them. It says in um, verse five, and the Lord did what? Came down. They built the tower, but where did he come from? On high, he came down to see the city and the tower which man had built. Isn't that cute? You guys built a Lego set, right? I mean, basically, that's what they did, right? Parents provide Legos for their children. They, they, they build little buildings out of them and then leave some of them out on the floor for their parents to find at night on bare, with bare feet. Um, every child does it. Um, but, but, what it, but where did those Legos come from? When that child boasts about their building and how amazing it is, right? The thing they built. Any parent like, that is truly remarkable. I can't believe you did that. You took the tools that I gave you, the brains that I gifted you with, and, and the opportunities provided to you by me as your parent, and you made something. And you think it's really, really impressive. <laughs> I think God must have looked down and thought, oh, yeah, you guys used dirt. I made that. Oh, water. Mm, that's helpful. Bitumen, which is derived from oil. Oh, like the oil I made, right? On the, on the planet that I created. And you're walking around with the cells in your body that I designed and the billions of lines of DNA code in each cell. But good for you guys. You built a beautiful tower. You should really be proud of that, right? I mean, that's how ridiculous it is and how ridiculous it must have sounded to God or seen the human sin is in the face of God. When we root our identity in something, what are we going to hold up to God to impress him with? When we stand, at our, uh, stand at, before him at the end of times, you could have more letters behind your name than the alphabet and be like, God, look at all the degrees I got. Look at all the, the, the honors I got. Look at all the grants I received. Look at all the positions I earned. And God's going to be like, all you did is take what I gave you and did something with it. It was only and always about me. And you missed it. You missed the point. 
They took something good and used it for, for bad. This is what C.S. Lewis says about this. If you're not aware, C.S. Lewis is our uh, sort of go-to um, quote. Um, we have a, a T ad. Anybody see it? See our C.S. Lewis quote on the T? Okay, a few of you. Um, evidently, it's blown up on Reddit. Seriously, somebody took a picture of it. And like, I'm not feeling this, this church ad, and it's like got hundreds and hundreds of comments. They're fun. Fun to read. Uh, <laughs> First, it's amazing how many people just simply don't get the quote. <laughs> they can't make sense of it. But uh, if you want to have some fun this afternoon, look it up on Reddit. Um, <laughs> but C.S. Lewis said this, but pleasure, money, power, and safety are all, so far as they go, good things. The badness consists in pursuing them by the wrong method or in the wrong way or to, too much. Goodness is, so to speak, itself. Badness is only spoiled goodness. Evil is a parasite, not an original thing. So God disperses people, confounds the language, judges them. The dispersion was not the judgment. It was God saying, I'm going to get my will done, whether you want to play along or not. It's kind of Jonah, right? Jonah was like, uh, God was like, go to Nineveh. He's like, okay, I'm going to go that way, away from Nineveh. God got, his, God got it done, didn't he? Um, he's going to get his will done. He was forcing the cultural mandate from Genesis 2 to multiply, or Genesis 1, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. God, through his judgment, did what the people would not do. And I know sometimes I hear people go like, well, if God's going to get his will done, then why does he need me? Why can't, why can't I just go do what I want? Because you are missing out on the very purpose of being a human being, and that is to partner with God in this world. And by the way, all of those promises of things you might do that aren't partnering with God and living for him are all empty promises. They are. They will not ultimately supply your deep meaning, need for meaning and purpose. So finally here we see that God redeems a diverse people for himself. And I love that uh, at the very end of chapter 11, verses 27 through 30, it begins to, it's like, it's like the... Um, it's like you're finishing up a chapter in a book and it just like gives you the, the hint of something amazing that's about ready to start. So what he says, so these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah, in the land of the kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, or... Sarah, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarah was barren, and she had no child. Dun, 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 right? <laughs> like, we're going to pick up there. You can read that in chapter 12, uh, and, and, but we'll pick up there. But what God's doing here is here at the end of chapter 11, all the theologians, all the scholars agree this is like the end of this, this part of story, part one, but like a good story, it hints about part two. And part two here um, is God beginning to narrow his plan and his purpose through a people, and actually specifically through one person, Abraham. Abraham was a father to a people who'd one day bless all the peoples on earth. So I encourage you if you want to read ahead, but that story picks up through the rest of scripture and the fulcrum of God's blessing for all people on earth is Jesus. Right, Jesus is the fulcrum in the story. Everything beforehand is pointing to him and everything afterwards is, is flowing from him. It is the point where um, the, the whole storyline of scripture 
points to him. It's interesting, the, the New Testament picks up on this, makes it super clear. In uh, Matthew chapter one, so 400 years, the Old Testament uh, had ended, the writing of the Old Testament, last prophet, uh, Micah had written, um, and, or Malachi, and uh, the end of the Old Testament, 400 years, no prophets, no word from heaven, and all of a sudden the, the New Testament begins with Matthew. What does Matthew begin with? Matthew begins with what many of us get really bored at when we start trying to read Matthew in January each year, and that is a genealogy, in the very first line of the genealogy. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the very first verse in the entire New Testament is this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now Luke ties, Luke's genealogy ties him back all, all the way to Adam. But Matthew's trying to show right here, Genesis 12, what we're going to pick up in, uh, in six weeks, all the way here. This is what it's all been pointing to. This is the one, the one who would live a sinless life, who would die as a sacrifice in our place. This is the serpent crusher. This is the one who would come and crush the head of the enemy. And then Jesus, after dying on the cross and rising from the grave, he gives his marching orders to his people in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, which is called the Great Commission. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This sounds um, a bit like what Adam should have been doing, right? As far as all authority on earth. Authority on earth should have been given to Adam as a rightful a son of God. If he had lived a sinless life, he would have had the authority as the head of humanity. But he failed. So Jesus comes now as the one with all authority on earth. But he's not just the human being. He's also God. So all authority in heaven belongs to him. And he says, go therefore and make disciples of people you really like. Go make disciples of people who look like you. Sound like you, act like you. No. Make disciples of all nations. The Greek is panta ta ethne, where we get our word ethnicity from. This is not geopolitical markers on a map. This is people groups with their own distinct culture of which there's around 16,000 on the globe that have been identified. Distinct people groups with their own language, culture. And he says, go to them, baptize, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So this is quite literally the king of the nations, the rightful king of planet Earth, giving orders to go all across planet Earth to invite people into this family. This is the anti-Tower of Babel. Rather than subjugating and forcing conformity of culture this, for self-centered glory, Jesus died for a diverse group of people to be brought together, not checking their diversity at the door, but being brought together in the beauty of that diversity and for all for the glory of God. Nowhere is this more clear than Acts 2, chapter 1 through 4, which has been called in, in reality, in, in the event, the actual anti-Babel. This is what happened. When the day of Pentecost arrived, so the celebration in Jerusalem, estimated to be even up to 2 million people, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from a heaven a sound, like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, which is other languages, as the Spirit gave utterance. 
So God confounded the languages at Babel to get people to move apart, but in, at Pentecost, all these different people with their, all their different languages heard in their own language the message of the gospel. And all of this lands in Revelation 7, the end of time. I love this. And this, and after this I looked. Behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. I just think John is trying to capture with his mind like what he's seeing with his eyes. He is like, I have never seen a sea of diversity of people from all over, the, all over planet Earth. And I'm trying to describe. So everybody from every nation with every language and every tongue standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their bland, uh, hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. This is the end. This will happen. Just as the promise of Abraham will find out was that one day his offspring would bless all of the nations, right? Right? Just like God told uh, Eve that one day her offspring would crush the head of the serpent, Christ came and did that. Now we are told, not only in, in like some theoretical, like weird terms, but an actual picture. I think John got to see this. I think the apostle John was later in life and God just kind of ripped back the veil and we're like, we're gonna let you look, John. Look ahead, see this, write about it. Say what you see and write what you hear. This is what Jesus died for. He didn't die for us to live nice, comfortable lives. He didn't die for us to do some good things in this world. He died to redeem for himself a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation on earth. And I would argue it's partially represented in the beauty in this room right now. I think Jesus loves the diversity that's in this room. Is it hard? Absolutely. It's so hard. And for some of you, it's even harder, right? English is not your native language or your heart language. You don't pray in English. When you're by yourself, you don't sing in English. Your heart is in another language, another culture. And so it's hard to be here, to enter this space. Listen, I know it's easier to go to a beat. And sometimes it's totally appropriate to worship with people who, who, who look like you, think like you, speak like you. Like, I'm not saying that any, anything's evil about that or anything. I'm simply saying that all of those are ultimately going to be joined up in this crazy, beautiful, multicultural worship gathering party that's called the end of time. It's the wedding feast of the lamb and it isn't going to be the African sitting over here and the, the European sitting over here and the Latina people sitting over here. We're going to be together. Think about how beautiful that's going to be. All Any sense of animosity, any sense of division, all the sins and shame of the past, the guilt, the fears, all of those will be gone. We'll be able to be transparent, utterly open with each other, enjoying each other, Listen, I, I, I'm, I'm, I am as white European as you get. Like, I'm English. Uh, William Mason, there was a guy on Downton Abbey, one of the dudes that worked in the basement, by the way, named William Mason. So, so I'm like, I think, pretty sure I'm English through and through, at least on that part. It's partially Scottish on my mom's side. But um, it's, it's very white. I cannot wait to enjoy, like, really just embrace and enjoy other couple, uh, cultures. Like Brazilian people, the way they worship, Right? Like African people, like there's something in me that's like, I just want, uh, that's my, my son-in-law out in the hallway waving his hand, he's Brazilian. Uh, 
I, I just want, I, I, and all, that, all the fear and awkwardness that would keep me from embracing that right now and jumping into that will be gone. I'm just going to get in there in the middle of it because it's going to be this beautiful celebration, right? That's worth giving your life to. That's worth finding your identity and hope in, your meaning and purpose. What's your goal? Get a degree, get a job, get a family, have kids. Not bad things. Just like C.S. Lewis said, those are not bad things, but they become bad things when they become ultimate things. All of this is meant for this beautiful church that Jesus is redeeming, of which you get to be a part of. How beautiful is that? For some of you, it's today your response is you need to embrace the gospel. You need to embrace this good news is for you. With your shame, with your anxieties, with your fears, with your past, your hurt, all this happened to you. You bring that to Jesus and he redeems you, brings you into his family. For others of you, you need to repent of making good things into ultimate things in your life and get it taking your eye off of the ball that Jesus has invited you into his kingdom. There are people, I, I, would, I don't even know, I don't know how I would even do this survey, but I'm convinced based on conversations I've had with, with a lot of people outside of Christianity over the years in Boston, the vast majority of people in Boston do not know the actual gospel message. They think they do. Don't, don't, don't even get them started. They'll tell you their opinion about the church. But I'm like, I kind of agree with about 80% of what you just said. You know? <laughs> like, but that's not the gospel. But you've been confused. You think that's the gospel. We need to be on mission to tell our neighbors and friends, how many people has Jesus put around you that need to hear this good news, this message? We need to serve others because of this gospel. This is what empowers us to go lay down our lives, to go serve the least among us, to go even to the ends and the nations as God would call us because there is a meaning and a purpose that supersedes anything you could experience in this world. We're going to move into our time of response and taking communion is literally the meal uh, that Jesus has established for his church. And, and, it, and it's the bringing of the diversity of God's people together around a meal together. There's no privilege at this meal. There's no one who gets to sit at the front of the table. There, sorry, there's one. His name's Jesus. He's at the front of the table. But there are no privileged seats there. There is only Jesus's people. And you're invited in today. No matter how your week has gone, no matter how your month has gone, no matter how discouraged you might feel right now, no matter how much you feel shame about your sin, if you're a Christian, he invites you to come back again and again to this table to partake, looking backwards to what he did for you and looking forward to one day you will be done with sin. And you can rejoice in that today, amen? One day it'll be done. Let's go ahead and stand. I'm gonna pray. If you're a Christian, anytime over this next song, uh, you can slip out. You can take a few moments to pray, reflect if you need to. Um, we'll slip out this side door here. We'll take communion out in the back and then make your way back through the back door because we're not allowed to have food or drink in here. Um, but you can, you can wait. You don't need to rush out the door. I know sometimes I uh, feel like you're going to miss something. They won't, they won't close it down <laughs> until everybody's been through. So you don't have to rush out. Take your time, pray, sing, um, and encounter God maybe afresh and anew. 
Uh, if you're not a Christian, this is the one part of the service we'd, we'd ask you to not take communion. You can, uh, you can clearly walk out. You're welcome to walk out with friends or those around you, or you can stay where you are during this next song. Um, but maybe you want to seek the Lord now. Maybe now is the time to ask him, is this story true? Is it real? Is, is this the grand narrative that we find ourselves in today? Maybe you just need to bow your head during this next song and pray and say, Jesus, if you're real, if this is true, show me. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. Um, thank you for what you're doing. That just as sure as you were working even through Noah's life, through his brokenness, to bring about your purpose and your will, you are working through our lives. We thank you that we can lay down our sin. We can repent of our shame. We can be covered and experience feeling clean, feeling whole, feeling new. And communion is that reminder. The bread is your body broken for us. The cup is your blood of the covenant poured out for us. This is not cheap. Nor is it just have a little bit of power, but it is powerful. As we take it, remind us, Jesus, stir our hearts. May we see you more clearly. In your name we pray. Amen.